Do you still have a vivid recollection of that day on the beach? Yes, uh, we didn't know what we were really doing. They're gone. Are you taking fire? The German fire is coming oh, at you. Yeah, yes, Can yeah, you yeah. tell me about that? What was that like? Yeah. What are you thinking when all this stuff is coming at you? Well, yeah, this I, I guess you just figure you gotta do what you gotta do. I, I don't know. I, it's a, it's a sort of a hard thing. June 6, 1944, Omaha Beach. Bob Wilcox was part of D-Day's second wave. He survived the chaos and confusion of that day, but a month later, in vicious hedgerow fighting, Bob was cut down and severely wounded by shrapnel from an enemy mortar. He survived, came home, married, raised a family, and became an optician. He could rightly boast that during his career, he made glasses for a queen, a cardinal, and a famous sportscaster. Last year, at age 95, Bob Wilcox passed away. But you'll hear his voice in this podcast by way of an interview that I did with him two years ago to mark the 75th anniversary of D-Day. His life is only partly defined by his military service. It was his service to family and community that made Bob a hero to so many. Foremost among them, his daughter, Jeannie Shottis. Honor Flight Chicago is proud to present A Daughter's Remembrance. If you were to prepare a character profile of your dad, how would you best describe him? I best describe him as a, a very selfless man, very humble person. Uh, he always cared. His his number one thing was caring about his family first. He would go out of his way for anyone. It didn't really make a difference. I was thinking about that today. I never saw my father angry once, you know, and the whole time that I, that I was with him. Um, he just cared about people and cared about outside things. And he just, you know, was always everybody else more than himself. When you were growing up, were you aware of what he had gone through in combat? I'm going to, no. I knew about the um, injury um, because of the shrapnel on his right arm. And there were a lot of things that he couldn't do because he couldn't raise his hand past his eyes. But I never really knew, you know, you knew he was in the war. He, he got injured. But never, he never talked about that stuff with or, or nor did I ask at that time, you know. Um, but no, I didn't know about a lot of that I found out later, um, especially after uh, Honor Flight and him doing a lot of, you know, talks and talking to people and things of that sort, talking with you. The Germans had taken the open fields that they had and put uh, big logs sticking up and everything. And, and, and when them planes came in, they're cardboard almost, like mm -hmm. they just were, some of the men never got off of them. Mm -hmm. They were dead as they hit the ground. 
When you first arrived on the beach mm -hmm. and you're moving inland, when, when you and the men you're with, yeah. were you thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this? Were well, you thinking, yes. I'm not going to yeah. make it through and this? I didn't know where I was going, actually. It was just with a bunch of people. And, and that was who we were going to go and follow and follow. <laughs> I, I was nothing but a PFC. And uh, before I even got hit, I, I was sort of the lieutenant of the company, and I'm, I've got to, he gives me a walkie-talkie and to do things, you know. I was a PSC. Oh, he's, so he's telling you to give, to give communication, to, to, to do to communication? To communications when he wanted the, them to start throwing stuff in there. The, the picture you paint here is that you guys go ashore, you're not with your unit, all hell is breaking loose. I yeah, mean, it yeah. seems like it was very unorganized. It's uh, was it? Is that the feeling you had yeah. then? That yes, what's going yes. on here? At the beginning, yes, yes. So tell me about you in the hedgerow fighting. Then you were wounded. Um, yeah. How long were you boots on the ground before you got wounded? I got wounded on the 8th of July. Okay, so you were about a month. About a month, yes. What happened when you were wounded? Well, it's called Bloody Hill. That was the name of the hill they had named it. And it took five days to get it. The first day we took it, they took it back. Mm -hmm. we, had, we had a couple, quite a few uh, uh, tanks and that were hit and were out of, out of operation. Then the fighting went on and they went back. It actually lasted, I would say, about five days before we took Bloody Hill. I was up probably in the fourth day because I know we, they hadn't quite taken it. That was by the town of La Haye de Brie. That was the name of the town. Was this uh, an artillery shell that hit near you? Is that what the wound was from? Yes, yes. Okay. Well, yeah. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, well, well when we, we were going, we were by the hedgerows, and the lieutenant said to me, he says, call and start getting some mortar fire. What he had sent, he sent a, a squad, six or seven men, mm -hmm. for to try to get out of the, the machine gun. And they went in there, and you could hear the bang and the bang and the bang, and then it seemed sort of quiet, and, and then the machine guns were still going. I had a walkie-talkie. I wasn't too, too well trained on that. He told me what to do, call. we got to get some mortar fire in there and then get that, that machine gun out of there. So, which I started to talk on that, and with that, they shot. They could make that land in one big piece or it could rain small pieces. And when they, when they came over where we were, it rained. It was all pieces. And the lieutenant that was ahead of me, as far as I know, he died. I know he went to the ground, and I went to the ground. I had the walkie-talkie, and... Uh, well, I was bleeding kind of bad here in the shoulder. From then, it was uh, a, another sergeant. Oh, I didn't know from Adam. Because, you know, you never got a chance to know a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And he says, come on, we've got to get you to the road, get you on the jeep. 
because you're bleeding like, so I don't know what he said. Well, he got me to that road. He told them, put them on the hood. That's what I was, on the hood. And they took us to the, to the hospital where that was built right on, built right where the invasion took that. Where we came up the hill, they already, they already had, had a, a hospital there? Yeah. They had a tent there and they had nurses there. They were working 15, 16 hours a day. Yeah. They did do a surgery on my shoulder. Where did, I was going to ask, where did you get hit? On your, your right yeah, shoulder? I can't raise that arm. You cannot raise your arm? That's as high as it'll go. And shrapnel went right through my shoulder. Okay, when you get to the hospital, you know you're bleeding. You're probably in shock. Yeah. Did you know what had happened to you? Did you realize that you had oh, a I nasty wound? Oh, I was shot. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I know that. I still have x-rays taken, and I got shrapnel. I still you have still have shrapnel again? Oh, I still got quite a bit of shrapnel in, my, in here. What, was there a point then when you realized all the uh, horror that he had been through and you started asking him questions about it? Yes, I did. You know, I mean, I think I think after listening to a couple of the interviews and stuff like that, um, I think I kind of knew what was going on, but then he would be a little more open about it. He was always, you know, he, he would talk about, uh, I didn't realize some of the things that happened at like the town that they liberated and he had pictures, he had a scrapbook. So I was able to look at, I looked at the scrapbook. So you realize how much it was, you know, how, what a lot that they went through. I mean, it was a short time, but it was a lot. Well, he went through some enor enormously uh, terrible stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. got the shrapnel in the in the right arm, and uh, and then I guess getting separated from his original group that he was with, and yeah, yeah. The second wave of D Day, he got separated, and he's trying to find his unit. Like so many right. others, they were they were cut apart from the the people they were supposed to be with. So part of their challenge was getting back with their regular units. Yes, it was. It was, you know, and I, I always remember him telling me about how how whoever was in charge just throws him up. A walkie-talkie and says, "Do this," you know, and he's like, "Okay," you know. But yeah, you, you, I found out a lot more about it, you know, later on. And but, what was he willing to tell you about it, or was he reticent to talk about all the details? You know, my father was willing to talk about it. You know, there was a lot of people I know with my um, with my experience with Honor Flight. There were people that. Uh, men that I thought would be great to go on it, but they just would not talk about it and wanted no part of it. But my dad, if you started talking to him or you asked questions, he was more than um, open with everything that happened. Well, as a young adult, when you kind of fully had an understanding of what he had gone through, how did that change your impression of him or did it at all change any impression? You know, it, it didn't change my impression of him. I, you know, my dad was one of the best parents you could have had. You know, I was very lucky in that. And I'm sorry if I get emotional. It's still a little, uh, um, still fresh. It, yes, it's still fresh. And, but he, he was, I always knew that he was such a kind hearted person and he never, 
complained of pain, uh, times when he was going through different uh, things in the hospital, you know, falls or things of that sort, up until the time, right, the year before he passed away. Here's a man at 94 that decides to take radiation, you know, for skin cancer. And he just never complained. So I, 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 he just was everything that I thought he was growing up, you know. He, he took great pride in his service, and he extended that to, to fellow vets, particularly mm-hmm. those who served during Vietnam. I remember being told that by some of your mutual, some of our mutual friends that right. when the Vietnam vets came home and they were greeted with a lot of disdain, he was the guy who was there to prop them up and tell them you mm-hmm. did your service. How did that, how'd that show itself to you? Well, that, that's his, his personality. I mean, that's how he was. I know that when he was very, he's very involved in the VFW uh, in Oakland, continuing to take different roles of responsibility. He stayed the treasurer for years up until a couple of years before he got sick. But he, a lot of, there were uh, a lot of Vietnam vets there. And he, they were some of his personal friends. In fact, one of them was one of his scout leaders back in the day. He knew what that war was, you know, he was following that and he just knew afterwards that that's what he, he, he wasn't happy with what was going. And I think he just, it's his personality, his, you know, his kind of personality that when he would be with Vietnam vets, he knew and he knew in his thing and they had it a lot worse. You know what's stunning to everybody who looks back at what happened, and, and it's true of other wars too, yeah. you guys were 18 and 19 years 18 old, you were all young kids. That's all we were, yeah. And, 18 or 19 years old, right, yeah. And you don't have a whole lot of direction. No. And it's a chaotic situation, you're getting shot at and yeah. shrapnel yeah. bombs are raining yeah. down on you. What do you want young people to know about D-Day? I don't know. I, I think that well, even though you're in the service, you know, you start thinking, well, what, the, what the heck am I doing here? Why should I be here and everything? I, you do it, and you just got to figure you're going to have to do it. You haven't got much choice, you know. You were part of what we refer to as the greatest generation, and yeah. you saved the world from tyranny. Yeah. And you've seen that said over since the years that have yeah. passed. Did you know then, did you have any feeling then about the importance of what you were doing? Yeah, I, I think I did. I, I wasn't probably a great guy that, like, I don't talk about that much. I know I killed four people, you know. And, but I, I, I tried that, I could kind of wipe out, you got to forget that, you know. I didn't feel big or brave about it, to be honest. About with you, it's just a matter of you. If you didn't get shot at, shoot at them. They're going to shoot at you. So, when you came home, then did that end your military service when you got back to the states, or did uh, you? No, it didn't. What did what happened? I was then? sent. I was put in Gardner General Hospital, and it was at Fifty First and Lake Park. Mm-hmm. It's and right on the lake. Mm-hmm. 
and it was a hotel. At one time, they made a hospital out of it, the 100, 160. I was in there. <laughs> we all joked about it. I said, we all used to say, I think they want us to start feeling better so we can go back. <laughs> I was in actually in there for all, a year. At the hospital? In the hospital. I, I got some uh, time off, like mm-hmm. a, well, a month off. And I asked for a couple of times, and finally the captain says, Wilcox, why don't you just come back and we'll send you home forever. <laughs> don't keep bothering us. <laughs> no, they actually, you know, sounds silly, but they actually wanted to know if I wanted to stay in the Army. I said, well, what would I do? He says, we'll get you. I see you going around with the, the, the doctors and handing out four by fours and and he says it looks like you might enjoy that and i said i i don't think so i don't think so his post-war life was one of community involvement and public service in oak lawn notably Mm -hmm. as we've talked about as a longtime scoutmaster right how many years? Well, in the Scoutmaster, um, I'm going to say, well, I mean, he was involved in over 35 years. So he did everything. He started Scoutmaster. I'd probably say um, when he was in his other troop, uh, the one down in the city, um, he was probably at least Scoutmaster of that troop for at least 15 years or 20 years. But he was doing, you know, assistant scoutmaster, and he was part of the district and all that. He was on um, Catholic Committee of Scouting, that type of thing. So he would take his troop up to Wasapi every year, you know. Um, Well, he kept involved until he was into his 90s, right? (laughs) Yeah, he did. He did. But over in in the troop in Oak Lawn, he was basically just, he was a, a leader, you know, never a scoutmaster over there, but at that particular point, uh, you know, he was in his—he's in his eighties by then, so seventies yeah, and eighties. Yeah, but he was still camping at late, late in life. Oh yeah, he was. I, I'll, I'll always remember that when he when he went there, and then, like I said, the couple of couple of summers he went with my son to Wasapi for a week, and I'm like, wow, you know, that was just that was a big love of his life too, Wasapi, and you know. Well, that demands tremendous devotion and hours. Hours mm-hmm. and hours of preparation and watching over kids who are not your own. And, and uh, right. that's a challenge. That's a tough job. His profession was as an optician. And he, yes. wa- he wound up designing glasses for a couple of very famous people. <laughs> <laughs> One was a lady of royal blood. What's the story? Right. Well, I believe that he, uh, Queen Elizabeth was in town. And uh, she was having a problem with her glasses. The Queen of England and the King of England. Wait, a minute, wait stop. Yes. You made glasses for the Queen of yes. England? Yes. <laughs> the goofy part of it is, I said to Mr. Spiro, the owner, I said, do you have a prescription? She was at the Drake Hotel, which I'm only a few blocks away from. And he says, no, we don't. Uh, he says, well, give us some. 
what, what do you suggest? I says, give her a slight tint, sort of a brown, and it's sunny, and it'll, she's going to be in a convertible, isn't she? And he said, yes. I says, that'll block off the hit there. And when she went by the store, we went out on six, on Michigan Avenue, and she did wave at us. She knew where the store was in there, the Queen, and they were sitting in the back. You yeah. made glasses for the Queen of England? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so help me God, may I just start that? No, don't do that. Yeah. Then he later makes glasses for columnist Ann Landers and Joseph Cardinal Bernadine. But his most famous thing is Harry Carey. Holy cow! Uh, he was very helpful in designing and helping Harry Carey uh, get his infamous glasses. Okay, so yeah. now I'll come back <laughs> the other famous person, Harry Carey. Does he come into the shop and say... Yes, see, Harry Carey was actually down where the Cardinals were originally. Yeah. Then he moved up here, and uh, he... Uh, he, want, he wanted big glasses, big glasses. And he happened to come, the way he came in to see me is because he went to Dr. Shock, who was at the hospital there. There were five eye doctors in there. That's two blocks from where I'm in the store. Mm -hmm. And he said, said he wanted big glasses. And Dr. Shock, who, after he left the office, he says, Bob, Give him anything he wants. It's driving me crazy. So, oh my God, you know, how big he wanted him. I mean, he says, I don't know if he's serious or not. And I so I went through all kinds of books to find if I could. I found a place down in Florida where they made real big frames. And I got that. Well, he didn't think it was that big. But I got the frame. And uh, when it was time to going to put the new lenses in there. He says, that, thing. I said, that ain't that big. I said, well, okay. We'll see what I can do. And when, uh, what they do is they, we'll say, says, take a look at that bottle there, right there. If it was small at the top and got bigger at the back, it's a cone mm -hmm. and it's heated. Mm -hmm. So you took, you, what we did is, I did is I took the frame I put it on there, and I go, keep stretching it, stretching it, and then when I finally got it big enough, I put it in ice-cold water to freeze it, and then we put his glasses in there. So when and, Harry came back in, yeah. and he, you showed him the new frame, what did he say? Yeah, but he thought it could be a little bigger, and I so I, I made it bigger. And till the day he left, I was still sweating it out because they didn't make that frame anymore. And I thought, oh my God, if I just gets broke, I might as well just leave it then because he came in and she came too. Did she? Oh yeah, she came. She got her glasses. She did was, he say she thanks? She was very for, easy to take he, care of. Did he say thanks for all your hard work stretching well, he the lenses? Was, <laughs> you know, he walk in and, and you'd have people sitting in there and they'd see him go, He's looking at, oh boy, I'm supposed to be at the park, real loud. I was supposed to be at the park. And, and there's people sitting there, and they'll say, Bob, 
take care of it, take care of it, take care of it. And then we'd put him, give him fish, and then he'd get in, go and get in the car and get out, out of there. <laughs> <laughs> you make glasses for the Queen, for Cardinal Bernadine, and for Harry Carey. Yeah. You're a and famous guy. a couple guy. other ones, yeah. yeah. Your dad says, <laughs> bigger? Bigger? Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But he liked him, I guess, because Harry had him for a long time. Oh, yeah, he did have him for a real long time. And funny story is my dad took a picture of him and uh, had him send a little note to my son and daughter. And it was to the point where my daughter kind of asked me one day, Mom, could you put that picture down? That man's kind of scaring me because <laughs> of the glasses. Because <laughs> they each had their picture and he, and he framed it and he had Harry Carey on top. And then, you know, holy cow, best wishes, Kevin. And that's so she's Caroline. But she made me take it down off her shelf because <laughs> Harry Carey's glasses kind of hit the man kind of scared her. Tell me, uh, he, he went on the Honor Flight, uh, Honor Flight Chicago, in 2009, but there was something mm -hmm. that led up to that that involved you. Tell me about that. Um, I actually was uh, part of a service organization in Oakland, and we were asked in um, June of 2008 to go down to Midway Airport and meet some of the vets that were, came, that were coming in to, to a welcome home, as they called it. And so... Myself and another girl were the we jumped on it and we thought, oh, this will be great. We're seeing some young, some young boys coming home and we're going to welcome them home. And when we got there, we found out that it was World War II vets. We had no idea that they were the World War II veterans that were coming home. And it just kind of at that particular time, um, knowing my father being in World War II and all that, it was just very. Few of us there, nothing like it became later on. You know, there was about 65, 70 of us there just waving and saying hello and welcoming them home. And I just thought this is a perfect thing my dad to honor, you know, my dad. And, and uh, so I signed him up. Um, he was going through some cancer, lymphoma at the time. But I thought, you know what, this is the time to do it. And he was able to um, get on the list uh, and attend attend the trip the following year in which I was a guardian with them. When you were a guardian, you had three veterans that you were responsible with from the time you got on the airplane till the time you got back. And I had three vets and they also told us that, you know, if you're going with a family member, you have to, you have to just put that aside and show the same respect that you do to your parent as you do the other two. Well, it was it was it was like we got there and it was kind of crazy because of the fact that some wanted some didn't want to be want a chaperone, some wanted to do this, some wanted to do that. So, um, but I found out with that my father didn't need me to sit there and talk to him and take care of him. He just wanted to be talking with the rest of the vets. He kind of went off and they told stories and they found out that some of them were in the same places. So it was really kind of a, I didn't have to worry about, you know, him um, taking, showing more at me showing, but I had three of them. So it was kind of a, interesting trip it was very it was fun <laughs> on the way home when you're sitting next to him i presume on the airplane and the mail call comes 
Mm-hmm. Was, was that an emotional experience for him? It was, yeah, yeah, it was very emotional for him because uh, at that particular time, um, we had, I think, all three of, uh, he has four grandchildren and all four of them were in college. So I think at the time we had to have them um, send letters. And I think he was more like just so choked up from those. He had a lot of other ones. He had some from the Boy Scout troops and the village and things of that sort. But when he read the ones from his grandchildren, he just, you know, it was just very, very, you know, emotional for him. Well, then your involvement started after, after the going with your dad. Yes, it did. I probably think I took a couple of years off. I didn't go back right away, but then I decided that that was probably one of the best organizations that I would want to volunteer my time for. Uh, it was such a such a meaningful experience. It's just so was so so I did. I then I decided to become a volunteer for that. Back in May 2019, uh, the street mm-hmm. where you and your folks lived for so many years. <laughs> Was form- 40 years. Yeah, form- 40 years, formally dedicated as Honorary Bob Wilcox Way. Yes. And I know that meant a great deal to your dad and to you and to your family. That was an emotional experience, too, wasn't it? <sighs> that was an emotional f- experience. In fact, I uh, watched that tape recently that uh, that was done. And, I mean, you he, watching him, the tears well up in his eyes, you know. He wasn't at his best at that day. He had had a fall prior to that. But he was always one of those people, as, as when I say selfless, that he always said, why, you know, why me? You know, so many people have done so many other things better than me. You know, why, why would I get a street named after me or why this? When Terry Border said to you, I'm going to put up a sign on your block honoring you. What did you say to him? Yeah. So I was kind of surprised. I didn't know, you know, exactly. And I said, well, why would they put my name on there? And they said, well, we have re- Well, that's what Terry told me. We have many reasons why we want to give it to him. We think that uh, people like him. It was, it was a very emotional day. You could just see, you could hear when he did his little thank you, the crack at you, he was, he was in tears and I've never really seen my father in tears that much either, you know. Kind of broken up, but I never expected to see a crowd like this. And I've been a little under the weather for about the last since January. Got a little, well, quite a bit weaker. But it just makes me very, very happy to see all these people out here. And and I thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. He was doing much better, and unfortunately, uh, Kind of the, you know, we're lucky. It, it happened during the COVID time, um, but uh, it wasn't, that wasn't the reason. He had series of skin cancers. So it's just, uh, that just, but, you know, it was kind of like, I think he know he knew what a, li- a great life he lived. And he was, you know, he had no problem with what was about to come next, you know. 
So he passed you know, he's, in April 2020. Right. And because, like you say, it was in the midst of COVID, that wouldn't allow for family and friends to to grieve and to honor a life as they might have mm-hmm. under different circumstances. So that had to be right. painful. Yes, there was no no wake, uh, no funeral uh, out at the cemetery. Uh, very short and and uh, no honors um, at that particular no honors at that time. Um, and only six of us were able to be there. It was. It was a very tough time. It, in fact, right now, it just kind of all seems a little surreal. It's like he's still around, and hopefully we'll be able to do something for him this coming year. So Jeannie, I was thinking, how, how, how do you want your dad to be best remembered? Oh, that's as a down-to-earth human being. I mean, my father, like I said, um, not, didn't have a mean bone in his body. He he cared about everybody beyond, you know, beyond himself. Um, it was a, a testament to my mom that he spent three years with her almost every night visiting her while she was in a nursing home. Um, married 63 years, you know, he just... And, and what he did, what he's just, I don't know. I have so many feelings. So it's just like, he's just, um, and to me, he, he's, he was my hero and a lot of other people's heroes. And so. he's, he's still with you. Yes. He's still with me. I, in fact, I still try to, every once in a while, I pick up the phone to call him and kind of realize that he's not here, but he lived a good life. 95 years. And uh, for the most part, pretty healthy for 95 years and a role model and a friend to so many. And one of the biggest, I think, impacts that he made was on my son, because my son, uh, like I said, getting involved in scouting very early on. And he used to he used to sit there and teach him about not teach him, but tell him about all the. My son knew every kind of airplane that was in during World War II, what the names were. I mean, he used to talk to him about it a lot. And Kevin became an interest as to that Kevin decided to uh, um, go into the the Marine Corps. And that's a lot most, I mean, it does have to do, I think, a lot to do with my father. Yeah. You know, That's the a, scouting and then, then then to be go into the Marine Corps, which he still is now and as a reservist. But he's put 10 years in, and I think that I know that my father had a lot to do with it. Thanks, Jeannie. Thanks for sharing. Oh, thanks. I hope I, I gave you what you needed. <laughs> oh, that's it's great. It's a trip tribute to your pop. Oh, you know what? And, and like I said, I, I just haven't been thinking about it, but this is a good way to remember him and going through a lot of this stuff and the questions you're asking, you know, it's just it was um, a great way to remember him and uh, put a smile on my face. Keep that smile, Jeannie. All right. All right. Well, thank you so very much. You have a great day. You too. See ya. Bye. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode, A Daughter's Remembrance, to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.